Before I take you to Psalm 119 uh, and preach to you the passage of the day, I want to say a few words to you about the purpose of preaching, uh, especially since we have so many new or relatively new folks attending Sun Valley Church. Uh, you may not know how we view this particular time of our service, and so I just want to explain it to you uh, so that you have a better understanding of what we're trying to accomplish during the next few minutes together as a church. We view that the ultimate goal of preaching is the glory of God. We think that uh, that should be the goal of everything we do in life, right? In everything you do, whether word or deed, do all to the glory of God. And so preaching falls under that umbrella. We need to uh, attempt to glorify God in our preaching. And I would suggest to you that God receives glory with the transformation of those who are changed by the gospel found in his word. And so as we preach to you the word of God, the, the Holy Spirit of God takes the word and applies it to your heart and does a work of transformation which brings glory to God. Uh, God is not glorified with superficial and short-lived emotional boosts that are so common today, uh, which are, by the way, a result of uh, superficial um, sermon preparation that bypass and ignore the text of Scripture in exchange for the thoughts of men. What seems to be, in fact, the, the goal of so many pastors today is to entertain their congregations long enough to get them back. Um, and as a result, um, don't give out the word. As a result, bypass the word. And, I, and we don't want to do that here. Uh, our goal at Sun Valley Church is, is not to entertain you, but to offer you something that the world cannot. And so we go to the Word, and we unpack the truths of Scripture so that your heart will be encountered with what God has said to you regarding whatever it is His Word speaks on, and you will do business with God in that moment. But we want to offer you something that the world cannot offer you. We, like John and, and Peter in Acts chapter 3 at the very beginning of the church, they encountered a lame man in the temple in Acts chapter 3 verse 6. Peter said this to him, I have no silver or gold, that's the stuff the world can give you, but what I do have I give to you. And so we, we have something at Sun Valley Church that the world cannot offer. We are not offering gold and silver or, or feel-good psychology or comedy. What we have is Jesus Christ in his living word that actually does a work of transformation in all who sit under the preaching of it. And so you may not, you may not leave here uh, with any sort of uh, good feelings. In fact, you may leave here under the, the burden of uh, conviction from time to time. And if the word has been preached and that is the way you depart, that is God's intention. All right? How about if we just let the word speak and if it convicts you, let it be, and if it encourages you, let it be. And so we offer something the world cannot. You can get comedy and pop psychology anywhere. But you can only get the living word of God preached here, 
not here, here, but in the church. I'm certain there are many churches in this town preaching the word. But unfortunately and sadly, there are many that aren't. So we want to, we want to uh, obey God. We want to give uh, prominence to the preaching of his word because uh, this is what God has uh, commanded us as a church to do. And so with that, let's turn to Psalm chapter 119. And I want to read for you the first three verses. So we have an introduction that warns you about the uh, uh, potential burden you might receive this morning in this sermon. When all along, actually, I believe this sermon will be of great encouragement to you. I, I believe that, that what we have here in front of us, this psalm, is one of the most precious um, words in all of Scripture. And I want to focus on verses 1 through 3 this morning, primarily verse 3. So listen as I read these three verses. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. So what we have here um, is a description of the one path that leads to happiness. God's path that leads to happiness. You know, the world's promise of happiness ends somewhere other than that. But God's promise of happiness requires us to follow the road that he, as our creator, has established. Wouldn't you agree that he, more than anyone, would know what makes you happy, his creation? And so he has given us the directions, the map, the road by which we can experience this for ourselves. I want to suggest to you, based on these three verses, that the road to happiness is a two-lane road. Lane one would be doing no wrong. You see that in the first verse, blessed are those who are blameless. Second verse, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Verse three, who do no wrong. That's lane one. And lane two, of course, is the second half of each of those verses that speaks of walking in his ways faithfully. Those are two different lanes, both going the same direction. Both of these lanes must be used. And I know this isn't proper driving etiquette, but we must take up both lanes if we're going to arrive at that place of happiness that's promised here in this text. But if you're listening and thinking at the same time, and I'm hoping that you can do that here as we preach to you. If you're listening and thinking at the same time, we have a problem in front of us, don't we? It says, happy are those whose way is blameless. How many here, by a show of hands, are blameless? That's what I thought. No one. Happy are those, it says in verse 2, who keep his testimonies. And yet, the promise of happiness is for those who will do such things, who will be blameless, who will do no wrong. It seems that this particular criteria excludes us all, right? Do you see the problem? We can't attain happiness because we can't not do wrong. In case you're still thinking you may be one of those rare ones that can, listen to this. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man, not one, 
on earth who does good and never sins. James 3, for we all stumble in many ways. 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Evidently, the Bible even says there are no blameless people. There are none who do no wrong. And some of you might be here right now thinking to yourself, if this is the only way to happiness, I'm in deep trouble because I'm one of these. I am full of blame. I can't help but do wrong. How am I going to find that happiness that's promised in those first three verses of Psalm 119? How am I going to find that happiness that Jesus promised in Matthew 5? That's promised all over Scripture. Only to those who do no wrong. You may even be tempted to doubt your relationship with God if you think about this at any depth. But to keep you from despair, I want you to listen this morning particularly close for some encouragement that you need in your spiritual pilgrimage. What does it mean here to do no wrong? to be blameless in all your ways. Because that seems to be the only route to happiness according to these three verses. If you aren't convinced yet of our desperate situation, listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Man, if at first glance, that, that puts you in a bad place, doesn't it? But the key here to understanding this whole equation is found in the words of 1 John 3, 9, practice and keep on. The idea behind Psalm 119, verses 1 through 3, the idea behind all these verses that I've read for you, including 1 John 3, 9, is what is the bent of your life? What is the practice of your life? What is the general spiritual, spiritual trajectory that your life is on? Is it Godward or is it worldly? Is your bent towards holiness or is your bent towards selfishness? What is the general direction of your life is the question before us. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that all of us sin, including the best Christian present. Christians actually sin and battle its deadly influences daily. So we have to believe that Psalm 119 cannot be solely thinking of sin. There must be more to the discussion. And I want to suggest to you that the standards established in Psalm 119 are not comment, commenting on your position in Christ, but they are commenting on your love for Christ. And I think this is an important distinction. What does the direction of your life say about your love for Jesus? That is the question posed to us in Psalm 119, 1 through 3. What does the direction, the trajectory of your spiritual life say about your love and commitment to Christ? Is it Christward or selfward? If it's Christward, then somehow happiness is a possibility. And that's what this sermon is intended to do, is explain this to you. All right? 
So who are those, looking back to verse 3, who are those who do no wrong? I have never met anybody personally who does no wrong, but I have met a few happy Christians. So what's the answer? Well, those who do no wrong, those who keep God's testimonies, it's important to understand that these words are spoken from God's perspective here in Psalm 119. And it's referring to those who were saved by grace. All right? Those of us in this room who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ are those who are in view in these three verses. Let me try to explain how this can possibly be, especially since that we are all personally acquainted with spiritual failure. Listen to God's word. 1 Kings 14.8, My servant David, God says, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. Wait a minute. We're talking about David the king? The one who had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, killed her husband, and covered it up with lies for eight and a half months? That King David was faultless, blameless? That's what it said. My servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all of his heart, doing only that which was right. What is going on here? How can this possibly be? How is it that God can somehow overlook all of David's sin that are clearly laid out in Scripture? Saying that he, is, he has kept all my words and done so with all of his heart. When we know good and well that's not the truth. We've read the Bible. Well, the answer to this question is the same answer to the question, how can we find happiness if the way to happiness is reserved for those who are blameless and do no wrong? It's an important answer, important question, if we ever want to be happy. And our answer must include the one who judges our sin, right? What is God's view of our sin now that we are in Christ? That's what we have to consider. Since he is the author of joy and is the, and the one who doles it out to his people, what does he think of our sinful condition if we are in Christ? And you know the answer to this question. We have Romans 8.1 memorized. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? That's how God views you. You are not under condemnation because you were under the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Since we are in Christ, God does not hold our sins against us, but has actually fully judged each of our sins as they were placed on Christ as he hung on Calvary's tree. In fact... The Bible tells us that God sees us in the righteousness and perfection of Jesus Christ. God the Father sees us as blameless, those who do no wrong, because we're in Jesus Christ. And you're saying, well, Pastor John, that, it's a bunch of double talk here. <laughs> we all know better. Well, this is actually divine double talk. It is true because it's God's word. He actually sees you as perfect in Christ if you are in him. He actually sees you as blameless 
free from sin because of Christ. He has freed you from that sin. And guess what? King David knew this. He understood this. He lived this. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 32. Blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Evidently, happiness comes to those who are forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Happiness comes to those whose God covers their sin. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. God looks past their sin because of Christ. And, those, and whose spirit is no deceit. And so Paul's comment in Romans 5 is so true. Where sin abounds, grace abounds what? All the more. You can't out God's grace if you're in Christ. I think this is good news. So you see that the blessedness in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the, the happiness in Psalm 119 and Psalm 32 uh, are for those who do no wrong as God sees them in Christ. God sees them as perfect. Charles Spurgeon said, God is so boundlessly pleased God is so boundlessly pleased with Jesus that in him he is altogether well pleased with us. You know that if you're in Christ, God is actually pleased with you? I know some of you don't believe that, but it is the truth. God is actually well pleased with you if you're in his son, Jesus Christ. So those who are blameless, those who do no wrong are those who have been saved by grace, whose sin has been covered. It's invisible to God. Secondly, it's those with a new nature. By the way, these are the same people. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be sorry for our sin and daily confess and repent from our sins. We should, just like David did. David's heart desire was to be Christward. He longed for that communion that only came with Uh, the the freedom from sin and communion with God. He wanted to please God and was saddened when he didn't. His heart was sensitive towards those things. The ones whose blame remains are those who are inclined away from God, those who, who resist confession, those who dislike repentance, those whose blame remains. Those who do wrong are those who minimize the life and work of Christ by refusing to confess their sins and actually delighting in their sin and leaning towards it and anticipating the next time they can get back to it. Those who are the ones who remain in the blame. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 said, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so those who do wrong are those who are always making provision for the flesh. They're they're always seeking out ways that they can get a thrill from their next sinful experience. They refuse to fight fleshly desires. In fact, they're quick to give in to temptation and look forward to it. Those are the ones who remain under the blame and condemnation of God. And we admit and believe that Genuine Christians can and do fall into sin and act contrary to their new nature. But when someone is constantly under the torrent of sin, overcome with every temptation, it would suggest a real habit of sin 
and maybe even the absence of the presence of God and the absence of a new nature, the divine nature that Peter speaks of. We've heard it said that sheep may fall into the mud from time to time but are quick to get out. Pigs, on the other hand, don't just fall into the mud, they, they seek it out, they look for it so they can wallow in it. This is the difference between those who are pursuing Christ and those who are not. You know that God calls us the sheep of his pasture, not the pigs of his pen, for a good reason. We may fall into the mud, right? We may get dirty, but we are quick to get out if we are actually sheep. We have a new nature, and it gravitates towards God, kind of like the needle on a compass. No matter which way you turn, that compass always, that needle always finds north. So what do those with a new nature do? If it's, the, if, if it's the blameless ones who experience happiness, those who are saved by grace, those who have a new nature, what is it those people do? They avoid sin. That's what they do. That's what we do. We avoid sin by keeping fellowship with God. Isaiah 59 tells us that our iniquities have made a separation between us and God, and our sins have hidden his face from us so that he does not hear. So when we remain in our sin, we, we have this broken fellowship between us and our Savior, and, and the one who is in Christ doesn't feel comfortable there. And so they keep fellowship with God. And so we must keep short accounts with God. We're, we're daily confessing our sins and constantly repenting of our attitudes and actions. I don't know about you, but the, the, the longer I walk with Christ, the more sensitive I seem to be to sin. The things that didn't bother me when I was a 20-year-old believer really bother me now that I'm a 57-year-old believer. Why is that? It's because I've grown in Christ. I sense a real discomfort in separation from my Savior. And, and the, the prophet Isaiah tells us that sin is what separates. And so I'm on the lookout for things that might separate me from God. And I run from them when I'm in my right mind. We, we need to have our, our hearts smite us like they did David and like Peter's did after he sinned. Does your heart do that to you? When you've um, committed some sin and are experiencing a separation from the Lord, does your heart smite you? Do you, do you feel a, a, a drawing to come back? That should be our heart's desire. So we, we do our best to keep fellowship with God we avoid sin by preparing for eternity with Christ. What does that mean? Well, the Apostle John, who was very close to Jesus, wrote this in his first epistle, chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet, been, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So, one glad day, friends, we will stand face to face with Christ. We will see him with our eyes. And on that day, it says we'll become like him. And that thought, John is saying, that thought of, of coming face to face with Christ 
should go a long ways towards making yourself pure today. I mean, who wants to stand before Jesus in a dirty garment? None of us. And so John finishes this verse by saying, and everyone who thus hopes in him, in other words, everyone who's looking forward to seeing him, thus purifies himself as he is pure. And so we prepare for eternity with Christ by becoming pure now, by seeking purity in our lives now, practicing purity. We look into God's word, which is the source and standard of purity, as one might look into a mirror to see if there's anything that does not match God's standards. You know, those who do no wrong aren't just drifting downstream, moving wherever the current of life might take them. No, they're actively fighting and resisting and paddling against the current in order to please God. These are those who God sees as blameless. You remember one of the focus passages when we were preaching the, the book of Hebrews was chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It defines this pursuit of, of holiness, the pursuit of purity, preparing to see Jesus. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's those who have died and gone on ahead of us, those, those, those saints who have pursued by faith Jesus, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us also, like they did, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, if we're going to lay aside our sin in order to experience the happiness that, that comes with that, we need to keep in fellowship with Jesus. We need to prepare for eternity with him. And then we need to practice the principles or means of grace. And we've talked about this so much, I, I, I don't want to spend too much time here because you know exactly what I'm going to say. But with the removal of sin comes the increase of joy. Would you agree with that? It, it, the more we remove sin from our lives, the more joy we can experience with Christ. And whether that's a personal experience of yours or not, at least theoretically, biblically, doctrinally, you can agree with that. And so this is what lane one is all about, resisting sin, removing sin from our lives. And how does God do that? He does that by means of justification when he justifies us in Christ at regeneration. He, he removes the condemnation of sin away from us. That brings great joy to our hearts. And then in the process of becoming like Jesus, sanctification, being changed into the likeness of Jesus, removing the power of sin from us also brings joy. Sanctification comes by way of means only. Justification comes by way of grace through faith. And what are the means that God uses to change you into Christ's likeness? How about this? Reading the Bible, things you learned back in Sunday school, praying, coming to church, serving, giving, all these things that we've known since childhood if you've grown up in the church. So practicing the principles or means of grace 
is how we avoid sin because sin is the thing that drags us into sadness and worldliness and separation from God. And so are you one of those that the psalmist is referring to in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 119? Well, I can say this. If you were in Christ, you are one of those. You're one of those people. And so here's a question that I want you to wrestle with on a more practical level. How much sin can a happy person tolerate before they begin to lose their joy? How much sin can you put up with before your joy starts to dissipate? And let me answer this indirectly by the following points. I believe that sin has its limits with all who know Christ. For example, no true believer will fall into sin that is contrary to grace. No one, no Christian, true Christian, will ever get to the point in their life where they hate God. You may have a lot of questions, but you will never get to the point, the Spirit won't allow it, where you get to the point of hating God, where you're in total apostasy. It's impossible. Next, no true believer will sin with their whole being, their whole heart. Psalm 119, 176 explains this. It says, I have gone astray like lost sheep. That's the description of sin. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. So the psalmist admits that he is sinning, but revealed his concern for the commandments of God. His heart isn't totally gone over to sin. And you remember in his sin, Job said, I have not departed from his commandments. So for the true Christian, friends, sin is, is an unsettling thing. It, it feels even a bit foreign. Bernard of Clairvaux said this about sin, a child of God suffers sin rather than acts it, and his heart's protest is against it. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, isn't it? I hate the things that I do. What's the matter with me? Is Paul's attitude, the Apostle Paul. And so it's not out of bounds for you and I to have the same experience, is it? Thirdly, sin is not the pattern of our lives. Psalm 139, 24, David said, I search me and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So we know there's sin. And then there's the way of sin. Those two things are different. Sin and the way of sin. Sin and the pattern of life. The way of sin is opposed in David's mind to the way everlasting. Two different ways, two different paths. Which one are you on? Remember, speaking of patterns of life, sheep and pigs have different lifestyles, don't they? And then finally here, falling into sin creates increased yearning of the soul. Uh, if you're a blessed one, if you're a happy one, one who's walking with God, who, who is still in sin from time to time, but when you sin, what, what happens in your life? Do you just go, oh, well, I blew it again. <laughs> is that your attitude? Is it a flippant one? Or does sin cause you to stop and yearn for Christ? I think you learn to be quick to confess and repent if you're in Christ, because you hate the absence of fellowship, you feel an uncomfortableness and an isolation 
in that separation from the communion that you know in Christ and his word. You remember the, the um, scene in the upper room in John 13, right? When Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, he's going around the circle washing the feet of his disciples, very uncomfortable situation. He comes to Peter and says, it's not happening, Jesus. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And then <laughs> Peter's classic response, then give me a bath. You know, just don't stop at my feet, give me a bath. And what was Jesus' answer to that? I'll read it for you. It's, it's this. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. What's the point? The point, friends, is if we're in Christ, we are completely clean, but we still need our feet washed because we're walking in a dirty world. You can't navigate this life without getting dirty feet. You need your feet washed, and the only one that can wash them is Jesus Christ in his own blood. When we have been reconciled to God, friends, we have been completely washed of all sin, all condemnation. We are no longer under the condemnation of God. We are viewed as perfect in Christ, and yet we still have dirty feet that Jesus must wash. This is why the psalmist and Jesus in the Beatitudes can say that happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart and do no wrong but walk in his ways. Friends, is your life Christ's word? That's the question of the day. What is the trajectory of your spiritual life? I think that every Christian can say that we are uncomfortable in the skin of sin. Let me, let me make some broad applications to lane one, that is rejecting sin. The first is this, beware of sin. Beware of sin. Why? Because sin offends God, just for starters. Uh, it offends the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How does sin offend the Father? Well, he wrote the law. He gave it. You know that when you sin publicly, it's, a, it's an announcement of your rebellion against God? When you sin publicly, it's an announcement of your rebellion against God. Uh, and you say, well, most of my sin's private. Well, then I would say this, it's a conspiracy against God. Public sin is an announcement of rebellion. Private sin is a conspiracy against him, against the Father. It also, it also offends the Son, doesn't it, sin? I mean, what great lengths did he go to to, to free you from your sin? All right, I mean, Philippians 2. He, he, he left heaven, he left his home so that you would be free from sin, so that your sins would be forgiven and dealt with. And yet we turn around and walk away from that demonstrating our lack of understanding of grace, our lack of thankfulness for it. It offends the Son. You know, one of the things that motivates my holiness, my pursuit of holiness, besides being your pastor, is the desire to present an attractive Christ to my friends and family. I mean, if I am quick to walk away from him and pursue the sins of my life, what does that say to the people I'm sharing Christ with about my Savior? 
He's all not that important to you, is he? <laughs> Would be a legitimate re reply if I were to continue unrepentantly in my sin. You see, friends, sin offends the Father and offends the Son and offends the Holy Spirit. Paul told Titus that it was the Spirit that washes us from our sin. So we need to be aware of sin. Why? Because it offends God. Secondly, it's contrary to our new nature. I've already discussed that a bit, so I'm going to skip that and go to the third reason. It's a dangerous resident. Sin resides in each of us, and it is a dangerous residence to play games with. You don't want to sleep over with a dangerous resident. There are no harmless sins. Sin really is an antagonistic alien living within us, and if we feed it, it will grow and take over. A few weeks back, um, we had an unwelcome guest at the church office. Uh, and this guest uh, would show up usually at night when nobody was there and leave droppings on each of our, uh, each of our uh, what do they call desks. Uh, and so we, we come back in the morning and we see these little droppings all over our desks. Um, and we're thinking, we have a problem. We have an intruder. And so we looked high and low for this intruder, looked behind the refrigerator, looked in the closets. How was this thing getting in? What's, what's going on here? We went to great lengths to, to route out that, that intruder. We tried different kind of bait. We did all sorts of things. We finally got him. We, we took care of him. But we went to so much trouble getting rid of a cute little mouse and very little trouble getting rid of ugly sin. And I was just thinking, why? I mean, do we, we are so concentrated on minor things when there's major aliens tromping around in our lives. Dangerous aliens. Friends, we must beware of sin. Secondly, we must beware of continuing in sin. Falling for the same temptation over and over again creates a, a callousness of heart that I think is very difficult to soften. It's like spraining an ankle. You know, the first time you sprain an ankle, it's very painful. I sprained an ankle a few times, and it seems, to, at least in my experience, uh, second, third, and fourth, fifth times you sprain your ankle, it's not as painful, and it happens more easily each time. That's like sin. Continuing to sin is more likely if you allow sin to go unchecked for a length of time in your life. So friends, beware of continuing in sin. Is there a sin in your life that you're allowing to have access to your life, whatever it is? And don't tell me it's harmless because you and I both know better. And you're saying, well, it's so small. And I'm the only one who knows about it. What is it? It's sin. And it offends God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It, it separates you from Him. It leads you down a path of darkness. It cuts you off from the path of happiness. There is no insignificant sin. That does not exist. Friends, the answer to these things, of course, is humble confession to our Savior. Jesus is the answer. 
confession of sin is a great gift from God. It's the, the, the healing balm that God offers his people. You know, that, that, that soothing remedy that our souls need. Confession, repentance. Many times I think we, we think we've repented from our sins and, and quit the process before the root has really been dug out completely. You ever notice that you struggle with the same sin repeatedly? Well, have you really ever truly dug out the root? This, Jonah's an example of this. You remember when he was in the belly of a fish? Confessed his sin of rebellion and pride. I mean, who wouldn't confess their sin in the belly of a fish? Jonah's just like us. He confessed. Okay, I'm wrong, God. I, I got it. You know what happened when he got out? He went back to his old sin. He went to Nineveh. He obeyed God. He preached the gospel. And then went up on the hillside and pouted because God wasn't going to condemn them, destroy them. Sin. Confessed, but not repented of. So... The point is that it, it's not enough to see sin as God sees it. That's step one. It's not enough to be sorry for that sin. That's step two. Many people stop right there. And many, well, some will even confess it, go to step three, and, rem- and say, well, I've done, I'm, I'm good now. But you remember our short series on repentance a couple months ago? There's actually six biblical steps to repentance that if we stop short on, the root remains. And that root will grow again. So I would encourage you to go back and if you are battling ongoing repetitive sin, to go maybe go back and listen to that sermon series or bypass the sermon series and get the little book, The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson and read it in an hour. But he lays out six steps to rooting out sin in the life of a believer. Sight of sin, seeing sin as God does. Secondly, being sorry for it. Thirdly, confessing it. Fourthly, being ashamed of it, actually being shamed by your sin before God. Fifth, hating it because of what it's done between you and God. And sixth, turning from it. And until you do those things, friends, the root of sin remains in your life and keeps drawing you back into that place of unhappiness and separation from your loving Creator. This is lane one, resisting sin, being blameless, keeping his testimonies, doing no wrong, demonstrating the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life by battling sin is lane one. And it's such an important part of being happy. But I've demonstrated from Scripture how God views you as perfect in Christ. And so why are you still struggling with happiness? If God views you as perfect in Christ and the happy ones are those who are blameless, then why are you still sad? Then why are you still missing out on the joy that's described here in these three verses? Blessedness, happiness, joy. It's because you aren't traveling in lane two. What is lane two? Delighting in God. So resisting Sin is lane one, delighting in God is lane two. And I would suggest to you that it's just 
or maybe even more important than lane one. And remember, you've got to travel in both lanes. A better illustration might have been a railroad track. Right? You, a train, if he only has one track to go on, how long is it going to last? Not long. Uh, it's not going to go very much anywhere. A train has to have two tracks, and it's the same in the Christian life. One track is resistance of sin, and the other track is delighting in God. So let's look at lane two, delighting in God. This idea is seen in a few places in Scripture, this idea of resistance and delight. Amos 5, hate evil, love good. Romans 12, abhor evil, hold fast to what is good. Resist sin, delight in God. That's what's being said here. If we're going to be God's people, we must resist the devil and embrace Christ and his ways. Both must be done. In order to be happy, we must fight sin and walk in his ways. Did you know that it's just as damning to murder as it is to not delight in God? It is just as damning to murder someone as it is to not delight in God. Both are commands given by God. Both must be obeyed. Thou shalt not kill, delight thyself in the Lord. But we think because of our sinful nature, our, our legalistic view of things, we think that if we just can keep from doing what we shouldn't do, that we'll be fine. If I can just keep my mouth shut for the next 15 minutes, I'll be okay. But the truth of the matter is, is that we must do no wrong and walk in his ways. Back to Psalm 119. The blessed are those who walk in his ways, who walk, blessed are those who rather are blameless. And then secondly, lane two, those who walk in his ways. So we have to do no wrong and walk in his ways. You know, when Jesus was asked what was the most important commandment, what was interesting is what he didn't say. He didn't say, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not slander, thou shalt not commit adultery or covet. He didn't say those things. He didn't list any of the prohibitions. What did he say? The most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's the most important commandment. The most important commandment is to delight in the Lord, is what Jesus said. If all we ever do is focus on the prohibitions, we will never truly be happy. We'll, we'll only be on lane one. You'll only be on that one lane to happiness when it requires two. If we will love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, if we will delight in him, guess what? We won't murder. We, we won't steal. We won't commit adultery because we're delighting in the Lord our God. So let me leave you today with this encouragement. Instead of focusing on all the things you can't do, just do this one thing. Focus on Jesus. That's it. That's all you got to do. How easy is that? I mean, is there anybody that's easier to focus on than Jesus? I mean, he's the perfect human, perfect in his compassion, the most loving person that ever walked this planet, the, the wisest person who ever walked this planet, the, the person who has in his grace and mercy forgiven our sins when we don't deserve it. If there's anybody that's easy to focus on, it's Christ. 
his infinite love, his infinite compassion for us, his infinite mercy. He has made every provision for us. And friends, if you will do that, you will lose all interest in those things that God prohibits. Hebrews 12, 2 again. Run this race, the, the path to joy, how? Looking to Jesus. Is what the author of Hebrews said. This is how you do it. <laughs> Keep your eyes on Christ. Charles Spurgeon said the surest way to abstain from evil is to be fully occupied in doing good. Makes sense, right? We've heard that in a few different uh, ways. The best defense is a good offense and so forth. Focus on Christ and all of this will fall into place for you. You'll actually find yourself enjoying the Christian life. Let's thank him for these things. Father, we are so easily distracted by um, the world, by our own ideas about how things ought to be. We believe that if we can just behave, we'd be happy, or if we just have certain things, we'd be happy, but it's evident from your word here this morning, just in these three simple verses, that we must be blameless and walk in your ways. We, we must resist sin and delight in Christ. And so we ask, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would do the, this again for us. We find ourselves requesting uh, monumental things each week from you at the end of our sermon. And so we again here are laying ourselves before you, asking you to do a miracle in us, that the world would not hold sway over us, that our eyes and vision would be, would be singularly focused on Christ. Please do this for us for your glory and our joy. And we pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.